The reading for today's sermon comes from Joshua chapter 24, beginning at verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, They buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious God, we come to you expectantly, hopefully, and anticipating your grace and kindness to be extended to us once again as we seek to uncover the glories that you have hidden here. And so breathe on us by your Spirit, we pray, that these glories may be unfolded to us, that we may hear your voice resounding once more as these words are not just read, but unfolded and expounded. We ask that the Spirit would be pleased to illuminate our hearts and conform us into the likeness of our Lord Jesus, the greater Joshua, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to sit. And let me say another welcome to the handful of, rather large handful of uh, unfamiliar faces. It's always a joy to see people Whether you're visiting us for the first time or uh, returning guests, visiting friends again, it's just wonderful to have you with us. We hope you have a wonderful time, not just in our worship, but if you have time for some fellowship afterwards, then come and grab a cup of coffee. We'd love to get to know you. I want to share with you today a word of encouragement. That's really what I want to do. I want to encourage you all. I was uh, in the backyard most of yesterday, um, cutting, pruning trees and trying to learn some new skills, horticultural-wise, and um, my mind was uh, drawn back to what I have been privileged to see in the two and a bit years since my family moved here. It's been, it's like, is that really two and a bit years? My goodness. Anyway, and I, I was just scrolling through the names and faces in the congregation and over events of the last months and years, and Some of the things I've seen, the steady growth in number in a joyful and enthusiastic growing congregation, uh, men and women serving, often behind the scenes, often in ways that aren't known, 
tireless commitment to the Lord's people. I've seen young adults whose faith has been rekindled as they've rediscovered the Word of God. I've seen parents who've gained increased confidence, not so much just in themselves, but in Christ, working in them as they've run headlong into the normal trials of parenthood and by God's grace have overcome them. I've seen babies born and welcome into the community of the people of God. We've seen men and women get married and embark on that journey together. We've seen mothers consistently, year by year by year, giving themselves selflessly, devotedly to their children. I've seen men take on new and daunting responsibilities. I've seen guys push themselves. I've seen other men thinking, yeah, actually, that's pretty challenging. Maybe I could push myself as well. I've seen families wrestling with painful providences, bereavement, illness, unemployment. I've seen people just day by day and week by week devoting themselves to the Word of God. I've seen people just rocking up for worship and rolling up for Bible study and just soaking in the Word of God and being conformed week by week and day by day in their own study of Scriptures, more to the likeness of Jesus. I've seen disagreements that could have been bitter and divisive, being resolved with patience and grace and forgiveness. I've seen people courageously rethinking long-held theological convictions and thinking, well, I've learned much that's good in the past, but I wonder if maybe I need to re-examine that. And I've seen them grow as a result. I've seen young adults take their first steps towards increased independence, moving away from home, going to college, getting a job. I've seen people handling terribly painful relationships, perhaps with their extended family, with grace and wisdom and tenacity and unmoved commitment to worship the living God. I've seen teenagers standing up against the vanities of a world obsessed by TikTok and doing their Latin homework instead, or even their Bible and theology homework, which would be even better than Latin. <laughs> Goodness gracious. I've seen many, many people stand up and be counted in the battle against sin. I've seen people who heard a challenging talk from myself or Pastor Neil who thought, you know what, actually I need to do something about this, and they've done something about it. And I get... I've seen one family move 1,500 miles across the country to be part of it all. And all of this, by the grace of God, what a privilege to see this. And, you, and many of you have seen this as well. Seen glimmers of what the Lord is doing here. What a glorious privilege to be part of that. And that's just two and a bit years. And all of that, all of it, does not just lie in our past. It also, by God's grace, lies in our future. As I was talking, I wonder how many of you identified yourselves in little cameos. I wonder if he's talking about me. Probably wasn't, actually, because it's probably somebody else. Or... But maybe I was. But how many of you thought instinctively about tomorrow and about next month and next year? These are all the things that, I'm not a betting man, right? But if I were, I would put money on all of these things. 
or the opportunity for them all lying in our future. And I want to encourage you today that the living God is walking with you into that future and you can, by his grace, you can continue to do those things. You can. And everything I want to say today, absolutely everything, I could summarize by just one single phrase. If you've got your Bibles open, and I do encourage you, I've mentioned this from time to time, I do encourage you to bring a Bible to church. Obviously, you hear it read, and there's something about hearing, which is good. But if, if, you're, if you're not uh, too inconvenienced by the thought of lugging one of these around, um, then uh, bring it with you to church. And look at verse 31. Incidentally, that's a phone, not a Bible. I know it's a, a good stand-in at the last moment, but that's okay. You can use that this time. It's fine. I have as long as it's on silent and airplane mode. Verse 31, everything I want to say today can be captured by projecting into the future these four words at the beginning of verse 31. Do you see them? Israel served the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? They didn't serve idols. They weren't faithless, they weren't rebels, they weren't lazy, they weren't idle, they weren't argumentative, they weren't violent, they weren't any of all the different things they could have been. Israel served the Lord. And I could just stop there, right? It's not really my style. I'm six minutes in, but that's it. Israel served the Lord. They hadn't even heard of Jesus, and by God's grace, they were strengthened to serve him, and so could you. I want to encourage you. You could do it. Not in your own strength. We're not, this is not an idle, pop psyche, pull yourself up by your bootstraps talk. This is a promise of the grace of God. The rest of this passage colors in that picture. Let me just remind you of the, the context. Um, throughout the, um, the book of Joshua, what we've basically seen is the people of Israel enter the promised land We've seen them conquer the land and divide it among themselves, and now we're in the final three chapters, or at the end of those three chapters, where they have the uh, final exhortations from Joshua, and uh, as you cast your mind back through the book, you see lots of episodes of failure. You probably recall, like Joshua chapter 2, those useless spies entering the promised land and being rescued by Rahab. You probably recall Achan's sin in Joshua 7 and the defeat at Ai. You probably recall Joshua 9, the deception at the hands of the Gideonites, Gibeonites, sorry, who, when Israel didn't seek counsel from the Lord. You probably recall that the whole of the conquest and the allocation of the land is peppered with failure. And last week, you probably recall 24, 19, and 20, Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a jealous God. He won't forgive your iniquities and your sins. And you're thinking, really? This looks like a very bleak future. But as you look into the future, I mean, I know that we know how it works out. And this is one of the things when you're reading the end of Joshua. Pastor Shaw mentioned this. We were talking about it on Friday morning. He said, so we know that it's all going to go into this terrible tailspin of the book of Judges. 400 years of one calamity after another, punctuated only by momentary short periods of God's grace as he raises up another judge to rescue them from their sins and idolatry. We know it's a terrible story from this point on, for the next 400 years at least. But they don't know. We've got to preach Joshua 24, Pastor Shaw said, not Judges 2 verse 10. And he's absolutely right, because here you get a, a glimpse that it need not be like that. It needn't be like that. We know the history of the people of Israel is one dismal story of failure after another, punctuated by occasional moments of light. But here, look, Israel served the Lord 
all the days of Joshua. Failure is not inevitable. Isn't that wonderful? You've got to picture the writing of this passage, especially from verse 29 onwards. Basically, there's a, a big disjunction in the narrative where uh, at the end of verse 28, Joshua sends everybody away, and then it looks like verses 29 to 33 are written sometime later. You know that because it's after the death of Joshua and after the lives of all the younger elders who outlived him. So probably, if you think Joshua's 110, you could just about be an elder at 30, and you might live to 80 or 90. So that's 50 or 60 years later, what happens is an elderly scribe goes into whichever dark room the books of the law are kept, and he reaches up onto the top shelf and he lifts down this ancient 60-year-old dusty scroll of the book of Joshua, and he unrolls it, and he sits down at his desk, and he picks up a little reed pen, and he dips it in a little clay pot of ink, and he says, after these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, and they buried him, and so on, and then he casts his mind back over the previous four, five, six decades, and he says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, even down to this day, and who had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Failure is not inevitable. Isn't that wonderful? And Pastor Shaw, again, we, I, I want Pastor Shaw to sit with me in forum today, and I want you to ask him a question about a phrase that he used when we were talking on Friday. He said, Maybe what we should be thinking about is empowerment. And I immediately went, right? Because we know that the idea of empowerment has been so contaminated by worldly self-aggrandizement and then Christians hijacking Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But there are some things we can do through Christ who strengthens us, are there not? And I just thought it was really interesting to, to recapture biblical empowerment. And so we'll talk about that maybe in forum. But that's not all this aged scribe writes. As he's sitting there, he could have just written verse 31, but he does three other things. One I've already read just a moment ago. He includes three burial notices. Now this is, it might not strike you as weird because you've read the book of Joshua, some of you, four, five, 10, 20 times in your lives. You're used to reading verse 29, the burial of Joshua, verse um, 32, the burial of Joseph's bones, and verse 33, the burial of Eliezer. But this is utterly unprecedented in biblical history. You do get death notices, end of Genesis, death of Joseph, end of Deuteronomy, death of Moses, Later, you've got the end of 1 Samuel, the death of Saul, but three burial notices. And it seems that what this ancient spirit-inspired scribe was trying to do, and here's the important thing, he's trying to encode, not in the sense of the Bible code, but to, to, to hint, that's a better word, he's, he's trying to hint in his description of the burial of these three men, to hint at what it is that they grasped a hold of, or that probably grasped a hold of them, on account of which they were able to serve the Lord. All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders outlived him. These three burial notices serve an important rhetorical purpose. They show us what it was that guided these people, and they might, if we can scratch around and figure out what on earth they mean. 
show us how we are to be guided as well. I've got one, three things I want to talk about. Joshua is going to take a bit longer, and then we'll talk about Joseph, and we'll talk about Eliezer. So first up, what is, what is this burial notice of Joshua, the son of Nun, call us to? If you've got your orders of worship, actually, at Mrs. Loki was kind enough to print an outline just on the little back of the insert. You could pull that out. That might help you to see where we're going. Joshua calls us, like the people of Israel, to be slaves of the Lord. And the people realized this, and the people did it. It might seem strange, of course, that <laughs> the first sign of hope for your future is that you get to be a slave. I mean, that doesn't exactly sound enticing, does it? But of course, you, you remember the background of this. Um, the, first up, just notice verse 29, that the word that's probably translated in your Bible, servant, is the Hebrew word slave. Okay, it's evet. it, 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 the difference between a slave and a servant is quite significant. Uh, a servant works for wages, and his master owes him something, therefore. You know, you go, you do your 10 hours a day, or whatever it is, cutting down barley, or sowing spelt or something, you get paid for that because you own yourself, but a slave is owned by somebody else. A slave is owned by the master. And here is the word slave. Uh, our Bibles routinely back away from that translation because of all the unfortunate historical consequences in recent years, but those are not in view. What's in view is absolute possession by another. And the background of this image in Scripture, of course, comes from the book of Exodus. Uh, Israel were slaves to Pharaoh, and the Lord said to Moses, go in and say to Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may be, literally be slaves to me. To be a slave to the Lord is to be set free from slavery to idolatry and be free to live a life that's devoted to the living God, which of course is why it's so tragic that the people wanted to go back to Egypt, back to their former idolatry, back to their former slavery, and aren't we so much like them so much of the time? We want, so to speak, in our worst moments, to go back to some imagined life outside of Christ or before Christ. And so Joshua calls the people to embrace slavery. Wouldn't you rather be a slave to the living God? Wouldn't you rather be owned, possessed by him? The previous little section, which I, I reread this week, and I read from verse 25 to 28 last week, but I wanted to include it this week because it really highlights Joshua's standing as a leader. And this is significant for reasons I'll highlight in a minute. Look at verse 25. Um, who is it who makes a covenant with the people? You're, you're expecting the Lord will make a covenant through Joshua, like the Lord made a covenant with Israel through Moses previously, and then Abraham and so on. But, but no, it's Joshua made a covenant with the people. The, the Lord isn't mentioned. And what are we to do with this? Uh, some have suggested that it's just some kind of private agreement. I don't think that's likely. I think it's much more likely that what we're seeing here at the end of the book that bears his name is the elevation of Joshua to the point where he can speak now in the name of the Lord. He, he takes his place alongside Moses, the greatest of all the prophets, being able to speak for God. And so when he then says in verse 25, he put in place, it's literally a statute and a rule. It's not statutes and rules. It's a statute and a rule or a statute and a judgment. It's a phrase only used once before. Previously, it's the Lord using it, talking to Moses. And he says to Moses, well, look, I'm going to give you a statute and a rule to see whether you will obey me or not. 
the Lord tests Moses by giving him a, a statute and a rule. And here it looks like Joshua is testing the people of Israel, giving them this challenge in the same kind of way that the Lord, the living God, tested Moses. He's elevated to the place where to hear Joshua speak is like hearing the living God speak. Does that remind you of anybody else called Joshua? Yeah, we've seen echoes of this all the way through, haven't we? And finally, we get to the end of the, uh, the book of Joshua. You know the name Jesus is the name Joshua in Greek. It's just the Greek form of the same name. And we get to the end of the book, and all the hints we've seen before are finally crystallized. And I want to show you some other ways in which they're crystallized. But right from the outset, we should hear Jesus here, calling us to faithfulness. And in this context, when you then hear about the death of Jesus, sorry, the death of Joshua, of course it lends it much greater significance. Look, walk with me through verse 29 and down to 31. Verse 29, after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. 110 years is, it's, a, it's an old age for a man. Now, death is never nice, right? Nobody uh, should be fooled by that. Death is a, uh, an alien intruder into the world in Genesis 3. It doesn't belong here. But if you're going to have a death, and you're going to have a death, wouldn't you want it to be, if not at this age, the kind of death that's depicted here? It's, it's reminiscent, actually, of Abraham. Remember Abraham in Genesis 25, 8, said he died an old man and full of years. Now, why is that significant? Full of years, it seems to suggest like he'd done what he came here to do. It's it's interesting, actually. Death does have that effect of highlighting our finiteness, doesn't it? Like, there's a limit to what we can accomplish. But to die at this point, it's like, Joshua, you've done your job. Mission accomplished. And then verse 30, they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. He received his inheritance. And then verse 31, what happened? The people served, or literally were slaves too. The people are now doing what Joshua did. The people are following Joshua's example. All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who had outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord had done for Israel. So you see what's happened. You've got three verses. You've got a death at the point where he's accomplished what he came to do. And then you've got second, he receives his inheritance. And then thirdly, the people are, so to speak, attached to him and thus able to walk in his ways. Isn't that just a picture of the accomplishment and the application of Christ's work for us? He died. Obviously. He died, but he died in a way where he could say, it's finished, mission accomplished, I've done the job. Jesus was not an old man. Jesus was not full of years, but he, he'd done it. He receives his inheritance, Psalm 2. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. And then how is it that we're supposed to be equipped to, so to speak, walk in his footsteps? It is by keeping that memory of Christ's work alive. And there's almost, if you read verse 31, there's almost a sense of connection between the people and Joshua. Can you see that? 
Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, as though it was natural for them to do so, because they've got the guy there who's, he's not perfect, but he's shown them the way. You know what it really reminds me of? It reminds me of John 15, I was reading this recently, where Jesus is talking in a similar vein about our discipleship and our relationship with him. You remember how he puts it, John 15 verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Israel only served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days that they kept his memory alive, all the days they they kept that connection alive. See what Jesus is saying here? It's like Joshua 24. If you abide in me, if you remain connected by the Spirit to me, then you'll be able to live this life of fruitfulness, which is exactly the image that he, he um, highlights here. I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, because apart from me, you can't do anything. And all these days, while the people of Israel kept alive that memory of what Joshua had done, it's like a faithful community of Christians thinking, you know, um, uh, we're living after Jesus We've got to somehow keep alive his memory. We've got to have elders who know all the things that he's done and pass those things on to us so that we can keep being slaves of the Lord all those days. And we need to keep that going for more than just one or two generations, but a thousand generations. Can you see how the pictures kind of coalesce? Now that connection, that connection between Joshua and Jesus becomes even closer once you look at a couple of the details. So, I mean, this title, um, Servant of the Lord, just look at verse 29. After these things, you've always got to look at the details, you know. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. That, that title, Servant of the Lord or Slave of the Lord, is used 15 times in the book of Joshua. 14 times it refers to Moses. Yeah, 14, 2 times 7, well done. Some of the uh, advanced hermeneutic minds are already spinning off, and you're quite right, yes. Twice seven times, it's Moses who's the servant of the Lord, the slave of the Lord. And here now, for the first time in the book, the very first time in the book, Joshua is described as the slave of the Lord. And what is it that he's just done? Verse 29, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. It's like, what do you have to do to be the slave of the living God? What do you have to do to be called the servant of the Lord? It's easy, you've just got to die. All you'd have to do would be to lay down your life in the kind of way that your Joshua Jesus has done. That's all you'd have to do. Then you too would be like a slave of the living God. Anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which is not Take up the little pretty gold cross that you've got around your neck, which is beautiful and it's fine to keep it. Take up the cross is the image of cursed, painful death for the sake of others and follow me. And then that's, that theme, of course, is picked up in the most famous servant of the Lord passages in the whole Bible. I was thinking about um, preaching program for the next uh, few months and I was toying with the book of Isaiah and I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm old enough yet to preach Isaiah. I think you. I think we've got to be kind of proper grown up, you know. And there's still something in me that's a little bit too childlike. I think. I mean, Isaiah is just too heavy. Like the first words, 
Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Drop everything, please. It's like, so Isaiah, maybe next year, I don't know. But, you know, the servant songs in the middle of, well, towards the end of the book of Isaiah. And the, the most famous of all, the fourth servant song, where the prophet talks about somebody who will be called my servant. He shall act wisely. This is Isaiah 52, 13. And be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And the song goes on. And the most famous section right in the middle, surely, this is what the servant will do, you see. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Just while the servant was carrying your griefs, you looked at him and thought, ugh. It's exactly the reaction Jesus got from the religious in the Gospels. Verse, verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes we are healed. We've all gone astray. All of us are like sheep. <laughs> Which is to say, kind of useful but kind of useless. Meandering off in their own little way. Each of us has turned to his own way and we're in desperate need of a shepherd. And the Lord has laid on that shepherd the iniquity of all our wanderings. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we, we have a servant. We, we have a slave. Um, if Jesus were here, he'd be getting in early to make sure the heating was on when you all arrived. Sorry about that, those of you who got here early. It's on now. You're warm enough. <laughs> and probably vacuuming the floor just to make sure it was all nice, ready for us to walk in. And we're called to be like him. We're called to be slaves, to lay down our lives for each other. And really the question that's posed for us in this text is like, okay, this is encouragement, but it's encouragement to lay hold of that calling. Are you going to lay hold of that mission? The, um, the potency of the challenge is highlighted. There's one, one final thing I want to talk about in relation to Joshua, then we'll move on quickly to Joseph and, and Eliezer. The potency of this challenge is highlighted by geography, the, the geographical location where all this takes place. Um, I had a couple of conversations with one particularly enthusiastic Bible reader in the congregation. I won't tell you who he is, but he knows. Because Shechem keeps popping up in this narrative. Keeps coming, keeps coming. Shechem, Shechem, Shechem. And here it is, multiple times, chapter 24, verse 1. It all happens in Shechem. And again, it's Shechem in verse 25 where uh, Joshua made this covenant and then uh, the bones of Jacob are married, uh, sorry, Joseph are buried in, in Shechem. What's with Shechem? Why is it such a big deal? Well, History, see? It's a location roughly in the, the center of the land, the memory of which is deeply ambiguous. It's like Shechem stands for the two directions that we could take. You see, Shechem is the place where the very first act of worship by Abraham took place at Shechem. He built an altar there in Genesis 12. Later, when Jacob uh, was wandering around in the land doing all the things that Jacob did, at the end of Genesis 33, he bought a field in Shechem. Now, it's very interesting, he didn't just take it, because, of course, he'd been told, you can have this land. His, fa his father, Abraham, had been told, you can have this land. But in Genesis 15, 16, of course, you remember that he'd also been told, not yet, wait four generations, and then you can have it. And so Jacob sort of looks ahead and 
seeing by faith the promises of God, but knowing it would be sinful just to take the land yet because the sin of the Amorites hadn't yet reached their full measure. So what am I supposed to do? I know, I'll buy it. I'll buy the, yeah, that's great. I get to buy the first piece of inheritance and then he put an altar there. And then Shechem became the place of the covenant renewal in Joshua chapter 8. Shechem is a place of worship and holiness and faith and putting yourself on the line to see the beginnings of the promises of God. And Shechem is the place where Dinah was raped. And Shechem is the place where Levi and Simeon took up their swords and created havoc among all the men of Shechem. Killed them all. And Shechem is the place where Jacob, the same guy who built the altar to the Lord there, was told, you've got to put away your idols. So you know what he did with them? You know what you're supposed to do with idols, right? If you get rid of them, you burn them, grind them to powder and put them in the river, and then somebody can drink the water of the river, and then what happens to the idols is what ought to happen to idols. I'll leave you to biology to figure that out. What did Jacob do? He buried them under the tree at Shechem. So when you go back to Shechem, you know there are two futures you could grab hold of. There is the glorious history of the earliest experiences of the fulfillment of the promises of God, and then there is all that appalling sin and idolatry, which is going to be. And so Joshua then stresses the challenge. He puts his stone down there, Does he put the stone there to crush what's left of the idols? I don't know. This stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, these are the final words of Joshua. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God, the end. You see, so, oh my goodness, this was supposed to be an encouraging sermon. (laughs) Yeah, well, Oh, of course it's encouraging. All of the Lord's warnings of judgment are gracious warnings of judgment. Jump in the fire, you get burned, turn to idolatry, you'll go to hell. Grasp this future that the Lord has placed for you here. And look, Israel served the Lord all the days of their Jesus. We could do that. The Spirit has been given so that you can lay hold of Christ and walk in the ways of Jesus all the days of your life. That's the path we're called to embrace. Briefly, let me talk about Joseph and and then even more briefly about Eliezer. Joseph, look with me at verse 32. As for the bones of Joseph... It's fronted in the Hebrew grammar. It's, it's like it's highlighted. Joseph's bones now, and in English, as for the bones of Joseph, what's special about them? Well, the people of Israel have brought them up from Egypt and they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph, as indeed it did. It's actually in the um, inheritance of the western part of the tribe of Manasseh, so it's in the Joseph inheritance. Right, now what's all this fuss about? (laughs) The people of Israel have been carting about with them for decades, hundreds of years, a big box of bones. Joseph's bones. And the reason is because Joseph said, please will you do this? Don't bury me here in Egypt. Bury me in the promised land. 
Because somehow, and I don't know how, and I don't know what exactly, but somehow Joseph had some prophetic vision of a future beyond death. I want to say, taken in the light of Scripture as a whole, Joseph promises us bodily resurrection. That's why he says, don't leave my bones in Egypt. My bones matter. He promises us a great future. Now, theologically, it's all there at the end of Genesis 50. Sorry, historically, all at the end of Genesis 50. You can read that for yourself. And and the very last words of um, the book of Genesis are in Egypt. One word in Hebrew. That's where Joseph, Joseph was put in a coffin in Egypt. So there's a big question mark hanging over the whole Bible from Genesis 50 onwards. When is Joseph going to get out of Egypt? The answer is he's going to come with the people of Israel even after death because theologically turns out that you can receive your inheritance even after you've died. There's an inheritance to be had even after death. And Joseph I have no idea what his doctrine of the resurrection was, but somehow, dimly, that man of God, who, who learned the hard way, you know, started off as this sort of spotty, irritating teenager, telling I had a dream, and all your stars were bound down to my star. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> no, that's not what... Well, okay, it happened. It's not exactly the most politic thing to say to all your big brothers, is it? But somehow that man learned about a future promise that must outlast death. The Lord can't possibly let death get in the way of his promises. So somehow I want to participate in it. Somehow the Lord will defeat this alien intruder and when he does, I want to be there. Now, of course, he construed that in the terms that were available to him at the time. He thought the inheritance is going to be in the land because that's what God has promised to my father, grandfather Abraham. So great, well, I'll just go to the land. But in Christ, the world is our heritage. And one day, there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous to life and to judgment, and our bones matter. Now, somebody's going to ask in forum about, um, does this have implications for whether um, it's best to bury or cremate bodily remains? And yes, it probably does. And Pastor Shaw will be on hand to answer all your questions. (laughs) So glad you're here, brother. But really, the, the point here is not to give funeral directions to us, is it? The point here is to, it, it places Joseph in the position where he can then be picked up by the author of Hebrews. Remember that long roll call of all the men of faith and women of faith? There are one or two women in there. Who, what does it say at the end? So he, he gave directions about his bones. He spoke about the Exodus and gave directions about his bones. That's how his faith was expressed. And the author of Hebrews says, none of them received what was promised. Because the Lord had planned something better, so that together with us they should be perfected. I have no idea what Joseph saw at the time. I'll tell you what you can see now. I'll tell you what he's looking forward to now. The same bodily resurrection that animates us. So all all you've got to do, I don't know how old you are, some of you like teenagers, all you've got to do is be faithful to Jesus for like 80 years more, And then die. And you can do that, can't you? And then experience this same resurrection that we'll join Joseph in. And then finally, Eliezer. What's with Eliezer? Let me read verse 33. 
Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. This is the final mystery of the book of Joshua. What on earth has Eliezer got to do with anything? Why, and why would we have him as the crowning moment of the whole book? You could end in any way you wanted, and you decided to end with Eliezer. What is the point of Eliezer? Well, the, it's the details again. Look with me, verse 33. How is he described? Eliezer what? Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest. In fact, Eliezer was the high priest during his life. So Bible quiz time. I won't ask you to shout out because it's all going to be disruptive. But why would the people of God be so concerned about the death of the high priest? Dr. Jordan just smiled at me. So reassuring, right? Because when you're about to say what I'm about to say, and he goes like this, oh my goodness. Numbers 35, what happens when the high priest dies? Well, it's very simple. Um, There were in Israel a whole bunch of sins which were crimes, which were so serious that the kinsman redeemer, a relative of the person who you had harmed or uh, the victim of accidental killing, like manslaughter or something, could actually come and take your life. It was a capital offense. But for certain of those crimes, you would be safe if and only if you could get to the city of refuge. And you could stay in the city of refuge. And the avenger of blood, the kinsman redeemer, would not be allowed to touch you there. And you had to stay there. It's kind of like a prison, except not one that costs everybody else sort of $65,000 a year. Um, but you could stay there and support yourself until the death of the high priests. And when the high priest dies, you're allowed to leave the city and the avenger of blood isn't allowed to kill you anymore. And so let me tell you, there's a whole bunch of really regretful, serious sinners in Israel who are really glad the high priest is dead. Because now they can go free. Now they can return to their inheritance. Wouldn't it be great if we had a high priest who died? Oh yeah. And so we do. And so, Eliezer is included here to assure the people of God of the complete forgiveness of their sins. Anybody still alive whose life has been scarred by, I don't know, one moment of foolishness or a whole lifestyle of ungodliness, and you're just like a complete train wreck now, and you think, is there anything that could be done to turn back the clock and make things right? And the answer is you can't turn back the clock, but you can make things right if the high priest dies, and now he's dead, except that he's not, because now he's raised to life in glory, from where he beckons us to walk in his faithfulness all the days of our lives, and then to receive this resurrection with him. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful and gracious God and Father, we thank you for this up and down book of Joshua. And we ask above all that you would equip us to serve you better, to be slaves to you all the days that Jesus lives. And he lives now. And so may we serve him all the days of our lives so that we may in glory be united with him. And we pray in his name. Amen.